Should we exercise our bodies in multiple modalities to preserve well-rounded athleticism? Or are we better served by staying active out in an unpredictable world of random chance that requires brain and muscle power working together? When it comes to healthy aging of athletes, use it or lose it is a call to action. Today on episode 109 of the Wise Athletes Podcast, Glenn and I are joined by Dr. Scott Grafton, author of Physical Intelligence, the science of how the body and mind guide each other through life. Dr. Grafton is one of those rare mountaineer neurologists. He has spent his career figuring out how the brain and body work together to perform magnificently complex tasks without any conscious effort. In our conversation today, we talk about how older athletes should think about efforts to hold on to physical skills and develop new ones that allow us to stay strong physically and mentally. Running on a treadmill, riding a stationary bike, lifting weights. These are fine ways to keep the muscles strong and the body fit. But without randomness and uncertainty in the environment, we lose other skills that also need practice. And worse, as we rationally tend to pull back with age, doing less demanding physical activities, we accelerate the loss of our physical intelligence. All right, let's talk to Dr. Scott Grafton about physical intelligence and healthy aging. Dr. Scott Grafton, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Scott, it's great to have you on board today. Awesome. All right, Glenn. Well, that um, that recording quality is uh, really not that good, but oh, at least great. it's not a bunch of static uh, there. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll live with that. <sighs> Dr. Grafton, let me kick this thing off here by sharing with the audience the backstory here. To, where did this episode come from? It's a little more interesting than a lot of them. It started off, I don't know, two months ago. I I, I was advised by an older athlete doctor friend of mine who's a really high-end crit racer, to buy your book. And I did. And I bought your book and I read it. Uh, Physical Intelligence. Kind of a cool name. Then, and I did not make this connection immediately, but then about three weeks ago, I'm sitting on my front porch, getting my morning sunshine, listening to a podcast, which is something I do a lot of. And I'm uh, listening to this neurologist dude named Dr. Scott Grafton, talk about how exercise is not the same thing as physical activity. And, you know, me being an exerciser, I find that a little annoying. But eventually I understood that you were diagnosing a problem that I have been publicly complaining about for the last six months, how I have been losing my athleticism as I have become more and more focused on lifting weights in a gym and riding a stationary bike in my garage and not doing any sports anymore uh, as a result of you know moving to a place where if I rode my bike out on the road, I would die immediately. So let me just say that I'm very pleased that you have agreed to join us, Dr. Grafton. Glad to be here. And uh, I think you've already uh, got to the conclusion or the punchline of the whole the whole idea of the book, which is um, what is it we actually evolved to do as an organism? It wasn't sitting on a Peloton bike. Mm-hmm. You know, it was walking, it was rambling, it was exploring, it was climbing, it was thrashing through the jungle. You know, that's what our bodies are optimized to do. It, it, we're, we're really built to deal with rough and ready and complicated environments. And um, I wouldn't say we're coddled at this point, but um, there's, a, there's a tendency for us to, um, you know, build very smooth sidewalks <laughs> and stationary bicycles and um, environments where we don't actually celebrate kind of what our bodies really, really evolved to do. And so, uh, uh, you know, one of the underlying messages in my book, I think, is get back out, do things in the real, quote, the real world, right? Uh, And and focus more on physical activity and the complexity of the natural world and less on sort of synthetic environments. Yeah. I think you end up more robust in, in whatever, you know, sport you're trying to get good at. Well, we're going to explore that fully here. Well, maybe fully is an exaggeration because we've only got an hour, but we're going to explore it an hour's worth here. And uh, you are just the guy to do that. I understand you have just gotten back from a trip to the mountains. Is this the trip that you describe doing every year? And tell us about how that went. And also tell our audience, how did you come to know so much about this thing called physical intelligence? 
Well, uh, I actually, uh, yeah, I was just in the High Sierra on a on a cross country trip. I did not in the book. I I talk a lot about going alone, and I use that as a narrative to explore physicality that's unencumbered by talking to other people or sort of verbal narratives. The, the trick about understanding physical intelligence is it's it's kind of like the deeper layers inside an onion. It's really hard to get to them just by thinking about them alone. You really have to go out and experience things and, and mm. sort of discover what the body is willing to do and not willing to do. And so I, I go out in the mountains alone each year uh, to do that. This, this trip I just got back from, uh, full disclosure, I actually went with a friend. We hadn't we grew up mountaineering together. Uh, she's a really accomplished geologist and mountaineer. She's a first women's trip up Annapurna, wow. an extreme climber. So it was really fun to get out and roam with her. The problem is we're both uh, so good at it. We, you know, we, a five-day trip we did in three days. <laughs> so we can really move, and most people can't do that. So it's really fun to go out. Sort of like you know, it's like when you go out with the A, a team. You know, it, it's really a pleasure to, to, to explore the mountains that sure. intensely. It was a great trip. Awesome. And your um, background is, uh, you're a neurologist. I am a neurologist and also a nuclear medicine physician. Hmm. And my research has always been in human brain imaging, using first PET scanning and then uh, MRI, fMRI scanning. I'm sort of an early pioneer of all that. And I've always tended towards studies that involve motor control and action and how the brain goes from an idea to action. And that includes everything from how do you wiggle your thumb to how do you make a decision about uh, whether you can actually execute something or not. Just think of walking through the woods and there's a brook and you have to decide, am I going to walk all the way around or am I going to go for it and jump across this brook? You know, people... In, in, the, in the cognitive neuroscience community, everybody does decision-making tasks like, well, will you take $2 now or $4 in a week, which those are, those are cute experiments. But I prefer ones like, uh, are you willing to jump off the, over this creek or not? Because mm. it's, it's, it's much more baked into, I think, the kind of decision-making that we evolved to do in, mm. in, in the natural world. And then that all applies to patients as well, understanding how patients with stroke recover, understanding what happens in Parkinson's patients and so forth, uh, understanding just action in the motor system is really important for patient-related work. So your knowledge is not a theoretical one? No, not at all. Uh, a lot of the insights from imaging, for example, led to a clear understanding of, for example, why we should use deep brain stimulators in Parkinson's disease patients. Mm. Yeah, that's that's become a standard therapy now, where you put you know electrodes in brains and some jamming signals in and release movement in patients who otherwise can't move. Okay, well, thanks for that background. And um, getting back to your trip, I, I'm going to have a little confession here and say that I'm jealous. Good. <laughs> I was, in fact, you had uh, told me about it by email, and I was. So jealous that I, I had to brag to you about mountains that I have climbed. You've done a lot, yeah. And, you know, and I did do, I'm proud of, you know, the, the mountains that I've climbed in the past. But I also am, I'm filled with regret, actually, that it's over. You know, it's, you know, I quit because it was getting hard on my body. You know, my knees hurt to, you know, my knees would hurt for a month. After, you know, doing a, a hard day and, you know, rough hiking in the dark over, you know, twisting things and, uh, you know, and then hard rock climb. Anyway, so, I, you know, I thought I was quite reasonable in stopping those kinds of things. And, and I have continued on that path of shrinking my activities to sort of fit who I am. And I think in what I'm doing is I'm shrinking what I'm capable of at the same time. So anyway, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I, I want to hear from your perspective. You are still doing some of these hard things that I was cowardly and gave up. What is your reason for continuing to do it? Well, it, it helps if it doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've had a knee replacement, right? And pushed hard to get through that and, and recovered well. And 
within a year, you know, actually within three months was able to, you know, walk 30 miles. Wow. Uh, so, you know, you can, if you're motivated, I think you, you can get over a lot of humps. Uh, you know, at our age, yeah, you get sore, but you know, I get sore sitting around as well. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's a trade off. And I, you know, I think you can construct sort of an appraisal of yourself that uh, motivates you. You know, you can, you can believe in yourself and get, and figure out how to calibrate yourself to what you really can do. You know, who's going to climb Mount Everest at our age? In theory, you could do it, but it's like, why bother, right? The, the value of getting out and doing things, you know, you don't have to go to the extreme limits to do that. I mean, you're in North Carolina. There's plenty to do in the North the Blue Ridge Mountains. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things to do. Yeah. So you just you just rescale it and recalibrate, and I think you gain a lot. And we know we kind of know this from lots of since I wrote the book. There's just been a flood of studies on sort of what does it take for healthy aging in terms of heart fitness, reducing stroke risk, all that sort of stuff. And like the the UK Biobank database just had a really nice study showing. Yeah, if you exercise, you know, um, to the tune of two and a half, three hours a week, there's huge benefits from it. And you can cram it all into the weekend or you can spread it out through the week. And it turns out what they're calling exercise is really just physical activity that gets your heart rate up. So it can be almost anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, as long as you're getting your heart rate up and you're moving in one way or another, you know, you're getting fantastic health benefits so you know we don't have to climb big mountains to get to get the the health benefit for some of us like me i mean i'm a little crazy i get enormous mental health benefits from being in in wilderness environments um, so and i can tell you kind of missed that as well that's true well so i guess where I'm, my mind is going with this is that um i was kind of thinking that what you are doing is you're trying to you're not re refusing to accept the fact that you're declining you know maybe at a very slow rate but maybe there's a decline in, but you're still trying to stay who you are you're trying to stay you and that's a person who you know has certain attributes and you going on your adventure or you know maybe it's more than one but you going on your adventures helps you to practice those skills that make you who you are, whether it's strength and cardiovascular fitness, but also, you know, mental agility for figuring out where you are on a map and, and managing your, you know, risks, uh, managing your fears, you know, so that uh, you're more resilient in your regular life because you, you deal with life-threatening things periodically. So, a traffic jam on the way to work is just nothing. There's no stress involved and stuff like that. I mean, is there is there truth in what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I think that's a nice um, that's a nice way to put it. Um, you know, there's, it's interesting. There was there was a big article last week in the, in the Wall Street Journal about a guy who's 85, lives in Tahoe, retired. He's when he's 66, moved to a golf community. Got sick of golf within a year. Picked up road riding on a bicycle oh. at 66, right? Wow. And now he's a master's level racer. Wow. So um, I think this is a coda to what you were just saying, which is in addition to sort of trying to continue these sort of passions, we have, physical passions we have that make us content, there's also enormous opportunity to sort of take a right turn and try something new. Hmm. And I think that gets really important as you, as you look at retirement. You have to be really flexible about taking new physical pathways uh, that can uh, lead to resiliency and, and happiness. Hmm. You know, That's interesting. Being a road racer at 85 years old is, is astounding, right? It is. For more reasons than uh, we probably should talk about, but I'll just mention quickly that when I gave up uh, – you know, I was doing a lot of rock climbing and tree skiing and mountaineering, as I have bragged about already, and then quit from a cowardice, essentially hoping to live longer. 
I took up cycling and that's when I started going to the hospital all the time because yep. the cycling crashes. <laughs> exactly. I'm still carrying no bits of metal in my body from all my crashes. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's health <laughs> rule. Number one of healthy aging. Don't get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah the, uh, the recovery time is, is worse and worse. But you, I mean, you've been talking, you, you sort of, you're bringing up an interesting thing that I thought a lot about when I was writing this book in terms of uh, this problem of withdrawing as you age, right? Mm. Physically withdrawing is, is a real big issue. The extreme form is, you know, the little old lady who never comes out of her house, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we're all sort of along a trajectory towards that uh, at different rates. And, and I think that is a real problem everyone needs to, to get around as they, as they age. You have to figure out ways of staying physically active. And I think, you know, um, walking to me is the simplest example of this. Um, these are all things we, we, we take our physical intelligence for granted and nowhere more than in walking. And if you think about it, walking is the weirdest possible skill to learn. I mean, and every other critter is doing it on four legs and we're doing it on two. Mm. And we, we, we treat that as simple and easy when, in fact, it's a, like a, it's a biomechanical almost miracle that we don't fall over every step. And it takes a kid, you know, 14,000 tries before they're not falling down. It's a, it's a really hard skill to learn in a child. Yeah. Finally get it. And then we take it for granted that, that we're good at it and we're at peak performance and we always will be when in fact it's no different than like learning to play guitar, right? You, you learn it and then you put it away for five years and you pick it up. You're not going to be particularly good at it. You know, oh, when you yeah. pick the guitar up again, you gotta, you gotta hone your chops and the same, the same applies to something as simple as walking. If you're not, engaged in you know traveling through complicated environments slippy surfaces bumpy roads you're gonna trip and fall uh you know just it's a matter matter of luck if you're gonna stay upright and i think we we really take that for granted that's interesting that that, that use it or lose it you know because everybody knows that that's the way it is when it comes to like physical capability and athletics mm -hmm. but when you're talking about something as simple as walking, I think the, the decline in that ability is so slow that you don't notice it from day to day. I don't think I'm losing it. You know, and maybe this is not a perfect example, but the one that comes to my mind is they, they say you never forget how to ride a bike. Well, I had a 20-year gap between bike rides at one point in my life. And I can tell you, I could barely remember how to do anything. I, I did not crash. So I did remember how to balance the bike, but I, nothing felt right. It, and maybe yeah. I relearned everything faster, but I totally forgot. So I, I, it makes sense to me that even something as simple as how to be alert when you're crossing the street, can you can lose it if you don't use it. So getting outside and walking and being in an environment where there are things moving around you and you having to use your brain to stay on top of is it safe to cross the street now or not? Are skills to hang on to? Yeah, the, the stress test that I talk about in the book quite a bit is uh, walking on ice. Mm. Every year in Boston, people walk out on the black ice with complete confidence that they can ambulate on this stuff. And there's more fractures <laughs> for a three-month period than, than you can count in the Boston area. And it's really, this just an extreme example of, you know, uh, yeah, a year ago they could, they could walk, you know, with some practice, you can get pretty good at walking on ice, but then you totally lose that skill each year. And, and for the first month or so, it's, it's pretty catastrophic as people go out and slip and fall. Right, right. So I, I want to get to talking more about you know, what can we do, you know, as older athletes who are trying to hang on to our athleticism, what, what, are, what are the things that we should do? But maybe we should um, start the conversation by talking about how do people actually learn skills? And of course, we don't have time to go into all of the details on that. But I've heard you say, and I've heard other people say, reps, you got to have reps. 
Uh, but maybe there's like some, you know, like rules of thumb, a simple way of talking about how do skills develop and then maybe that'll help us to understand, you know, that doing something like riding a bike is actually not a skill. It's a, it's a whole symphony of skills and you've got to be practicing all of them, you know, with some regularity in order to be safe on a bicycle or you've lost that and now it's much harder to get it back. Yeah, I if you just think of some novel skill you want to learn, let's say playing a musical instrument or learning some sport or, or something horrendous like hitting a golf ball, mm. uh, right? Um, it's interesting what the brain does. I mean, in the 30, 40 years ago in sort of cognitive neuroscience space, we really compartmentalized the brain into, oh, this is the part of the brain that does motor skills. This is the part of the brain that remembers episodes in your life. Here's the language area and so forth. And here's the vision, remembering faces area and so forth, right? We, and we said, okay, you're learning this new skill, like swinging the club. The motor area is going to do everything, full stop. That's how it works. It's going to represent that and change that. Or, or the brain's going to change and understand how to do that. Um, and then the other, and so that was a total mistake. And then the other mistake we had was, well, some areas are going to figure out what you need to do. You're going to learn some motor program, or we're going to store that in another area of the brain, kind of like you have your CPU and you've got a hard disk on your computer. The hard disk is going to hold the memory of how to, how to swing a golf club, and then some area, other area is going to execute it. That's in all the books, and it's all wrong. It's just none of that works. And it's, these are like zombies that you can't kill. Um, what you really see is um, brains want to get performance. They want to improve performance any way they can by hook or by crook. So, so if you're swinging a golf club for the first time, you're going to use cognitive strategies, you know, you say, well, I'm going to put my hands here and I'm going to stand here and I'm going to do this. And I use all these verbal rules about how to swing the club. Then I'm going to swing the club and I'm going to track my hands as I'm doing it. And I'm going to pay attention to everything I'm doing while I'm swinging. So you can see how I'm using my mind, my verbal mind to swing a club. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with the verbal mind is it's slow. It, it, Remember old dial-up modems? Mm -hmm. That's about how fast verbal thought operates. So it's, it's not good enough for swinging a club, right? It's way too slow. And at the same time, your motor systems are trying to also figure out how to swing this funny thing. So, so all these different systems that we have are throwing everything they can at, at the problem. And if you're lucky, you start figuring out like motorically what's working and oftentimes you have no idea what it is you can ask a person what they're doing that makes them more successful and they'll always tell you something the verbal mind's always got a story uh but it's rarely accurate okay when it comes to physical abilities like i don't you know you, you don't know why you're doing better you just are yeah. especially if you ask an adult something they learned as a child they have yeah. no idea they have no idea. So, um, and yeah, and then you need reps. And then uh, to really anchor in, essentially, you're through successful shots or whatever you're doing, you're reinforcing some kind of action that, that's more effective. Yeah, that's really under the surface. I mean, it's, it's really baked into your motor loops, and, and you can't access that with your mind. And we want it that way. We don't want to have to think about doing stuff, right? I mean, executing stuff. You don't want to have to stop everything you're doing just to button a button on your shirt, right? Mm -hmm. You just want to be able to do that and continue talking to someone at the same time. So we really layer this stuff down deep where it's hard to get at. And so it's, it can be very frustrating because those systems that learn these skills, they just, they, they change slowly. And, and, uh, and they, they're trying to figure out how general to be or how specific to be. Hmm. Like, uh, you know, you don't want to be able to swing a, a seven iron, but not a, a putter or a, a pitching wedge, right? You know, you hmm. have to have some generalization as well. So all that stuff's getting figured out as you go. So then, so then it gets down to uh, how do you make practice more effective? Or like, how do you speed all this up, right? 
for a long time there was this idea of oh you got to do 10,000 10, hours of practice that, oh yeah that just came out what was some, that what was that book that Erickson's books yeah and and most of that's let's just say sure why not um uh, one of my students and I were we started writing a paper once called "How to Practice Ten Thousand Hours and Still Not Be Any Better." <laughs> well, that sounds like something I could do. Right, right. So we all know that. I mean, uh, yeah, because you can practice ten thousand hours and still re be really bad at something. Yeah. Um, and so it so that the field has moved away from absolute numbers to like what is smart practice. And if you look at uh, there's a couple things that happen. So uh, we've done a lot of imaging studies looking at how the brain brain activity changes as you learn a physical skill. It could be something like playing a piano arpeggio. And there really is this tipping point where the sort of frontal brain areas, cognitive brain areas, sort of the mind, the faster those networks turn off, the sooner they turn off, I should say, uh, the quicker that person's going to, uh, the faster that person's going to learn, right? So, so the sooner they quit thinking about it and just the, doing it, the better they are? Yeah, then they really start getting speed gains, huh. right? So this, this idea of letting go, right? Just, just swing the damn club or, you know, just play the arpeggio. And, you know, that's true with elite performers as well. Lots of golfers have talked about lights out golf. I mean, Fuzzy Zoller once was walking up to the 18th tee to win a tournament. And they said, how did you do it? And he said, I've been brain dead all week. <laughs> Which, right? Just no thinking. So, so getting you need that stuff early on, right? Because you have no idea what you're doing. So, and you're just trying to get some kind of performance. But then there's a tipping point where you just got to get this, this sort of mentalizing out of the way. So that's a, that's a big step. And then, depending on, on what the skill is, um, there are other strategies to help you sort of anchor skills. Um, I think the big, what are the big three? Um, one would be just smart, smart practice. So if you look at like a concert musician, right, who's going to go in, do they, you know, they got a uh, you know, whole symphony they're going to be playing through. Are they going to practice the whole symphony? No, they're going to play the 30 measures that, that are just killer, right? Mm. And they're going to get those down. So they're very, very efficient with their time at only doing what they need to do to, to enhance their performance. And that's, so that's a true at the elite level, but it's also true for beginners, right? Um, you see this over and over in beginning musicians. They will, just, they will play through whole songs that are fun to play, and then they kind of avoid avoid the hard stuff <laughs> mm. when they should only be dealing with the hard stuff. So that takes a lot of discipline. Um, mm. It's a little bit like if you're bicyclist, right? Go go practice on the hill that's brutal, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to practice on the flats getting to that hill. Um, right. You know those kinds of so so really figuring out where your weak points are, or where you're uncomfortable or uncertain, and really pursuing that. If you're a swimmer, you know, nailing your kick turn, it could be all kinds of things, right? Lots of examples. I think the second thing is, is variability in practice. There's this funny thing called, uh, well, the name of it doesn't matter. It's called contextual interference, which is a completely misleading jargon from psychology. But the idea is it's good to have randomness in the practice as well. So uh, the example I like to give is, um, a pitching machine, like you want to hit baseballs, and you've got a pitching machine. And let's sure. say the machine can throw sliders, fastballs, and change-ups, all right? And your coach can control what you're going to get. You're going to do 20 of each, right? He can, he can, he can do them in block form, so you do all the, pit, all the fastballs, all the change-ups, right? Or he can do them randomly, so you don't know what you're going to get each round. Same total number of pitches. Everybody likes to do them in block form because at the end of each block, you're just nailing it. During that practice session, you get really, really good at hitting the fastball and really, really good at hitting the changeup. If you do the random, you're really frustrated because at the end of that day, you, you feel like you, you just haven't gotten anywhere with any of them. It's hard. Okay. Now you bring the same person back the next day and it doesn't matter whether you, whether you test them in block or random form. You just throw in those pitches, 
guess who's better? The people who got them in random. It's yeah. an amazing effect. It, and it works in works just about every sport you can think of, of a way to design it. It works, you know, golf clubs, you know, like if you go to the driving range, just pick a club out of the bag randomly, randomly, randomly. That's how you want to do it. And um, interesting. And, and it's not because of the strategy. It's just literally how your brain has to bring up all the knowledge to use that one club or hit that one kind of pitch. Once you start repeating it, it doesn't have to start from scratch each time and, and, and cook up the right motor programs to pull it off. So it's a giant, it's a giant effect. But sort of giving you a breadth of skill so you can handle more variation in the environment, I guess, is yeah. this is what's happening. Yeah, so you're thinking about the external world and the strategies for the external world. This is just what are you going to remember? Like what is your body going to bake in as a physical skill? Yeah. You know, what are you going to be better at doing the next day? And it's going to be things where you've been having to cook them up kind of randomly like this. So just to make sure I'm getting this, even though it may be true that I am get becoming more, I'm able to handle more variety in the environment, I'm also better at the things I was already good at. Yeah, you're, it's going to help you get better at executing these different actions. That's interesting. You know, it could be... So the brain likes errors, it learns from the errors. Yeah, it's learning from the errors and also having, it takes, if you're changing what you're doing each trial, it takes the brain more work to just create that program, to cook up that action. If I do the same thing two times in a row, it's, it's sort of like I have a lot of the action already in the yeah. system ready to go, which, which helps you in the moment, but it doesn't help you with remembering. Yeah, the learning. This is what we're after, right? Yeah. And it's true with foreign languages as well. Like, you can drill with foreign language, you know, over and over and over the same phrase mm -hmm. or so forth. But what you really need is sort of randomness, right? You need to get thrown oddballs at you. And, and it's, it's that random structure that really leads to deeper retention. I see. Okay. Well, is there anything else? I mean, I've heard things like, after you've had practice, you should sit quietly and let your brain sort of consolidate what you've learned. I mean, are these like myths that aren't really true? Um, for physical skills, uh, sleep matters. Okay. Rest doesn't do anything. Sleep matters. Sleep, sleep. Okay, my worst <laughs> good, thing. But, good uh, sleep uh, is right. really important. It's all really right. cool. There's studies now showing in rats and in monkeys and humans, you know, if you – you think of the motor areas of the brain that are doing an action that you're learning, you know, a skill that you're learning, and then yeah. you can map the brain at night while they're dreaming, and you can see these same. You can see the replay, right? No way. Yeah. So the brain is is replaying what they were learning. So they're like getting more practice. Yeah, or, or I wouldn't say it's more practice. It's anchoring what they practiced. It's storing away those memories. Yeah, you need that to anchor it in. Okay. Cool. Well, that's great. All right. Well, that, good. So that and, you know, eight years of hard school and, and we could be an expert in uh, skill learning, but uh, thanks for that. And, <laughs> and let's get into, so what does that tell us about, you know, hanging on to our skills? And I, and I think we need to slip in there, this business of we're sort of born to learn things, I think, is a point you're, you've been making here since we've been talking, is that we're, we're born for this. We learn things, and the harder we try, the better we are at it, but we're awesome at it. Uh, we can even learn to walk on two legs. But part, and maybe it's a part of, maybe it's hand and glove with that same skill, is we are awesome at forgetting things. So if we don't use skills that we don't need, and, and that would mean we don't need them because, how do we know that? Well, we don't use them, but then we don't need them. Well, we forget them, and I guess we free up room on that hard drive for something else. So if we are not using it, we are losing it. And that means that, like the, the toddler fell down 14,000 times and gave us this wonderful skill, and if we don't use it, well, we'll be falling down, you know, like we never learned it. So how do yeah. we hang on to these skills? How often do we have to do things? Do we need things to be, I mean, you've already made the point that exercise, right? Walking or running on a treadmill that's e an even pace and a, a regular flat surface and there's no way to trip. 
okay, maybe that's good for my muscles and my cardiovascular system, but there's a whole bunch of things in my body that are not getting exercised when I do that. What, what do you have to tell us about this? Yeah, um, anything is better than nothing, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think in our society now, we have to worry about the nothing factor. I mean, do something. And so I, I, I'm not condemning, let's say, going to the gym or whatever uh, versus doing nothing. But I think, I think people can get a little bit beyond that uh, as well. I think, I think a walk to the gym is almost as valuable as, as the gym itself, for, mm. particularly for an aging person. You don't need, you know, I think people go to the gym for a lot of reasons, not just uh, physical health. There's a lot of, there's a big social component and there are, there are other positives to it. So I, I can't be too critical. But if, if you think about healthy aging and preserving skills, it doesn't take a ton of time each day to get the most of the benefit. You're talking about 20 minutes to a half an hour of walking in complex environments, walking in, na- you know, in nature, getting out, doing something that makes you sweat. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same with, with, I think, most sports, right? You know, you, you get out, you play whatever it is for 20 minutes, you're kind of, you're back in the groove pretty quick. So it doesn't, you know, we don't have to do these things eight hours a day to, to stay tuned up. So once a week, every other week, a few hours, we'll hang on to things. And the idea here, if I'm capturing it right, is is to don't lose it and try to have to get it back. You know, try to hold on to it. Because, you know, when you've fallen far enough, now it's really hard. Now you're going to fall 14,000 times to learn how to walk again. And since you're you know, six foot tall and with fragile bones, that's not going to go as well as it did when you were a toddler. Yeah. So, you, you know, you want to hold on to it before you've lost it too much. But it doesn't have to be all day, every day to hang on. No, to not at all. No. All right. And most of, most of the longevity or healthy aging studies really are showing, you know, 20, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day of, of something this physical, you know, physical engagement, physical activity. I think, I, you know, that that's where you get most of the health benefits. I think, I guess the way I think about it is if you have access to interesting natural environments, parks, mountains, trails, that adds a whole additional level that's beneficial. That's only just beginning to be studied. And so far, it looks, looks like that's an added value as well. Yeah. I don't- was it a podcast you were in? Were you the one mentioning it um, that people who lived, who retired to an area that had a uh, an open space nearby where they could walk on trails, they lived much longer? That's right. Yeah. No, it's these are observational studies, so it's always a little tricky to make sure there's not bias in the way they're designed. But yeah, it, it, these are the Europeans are really into this right now as a quest as an experimental question. The degree to which you know, uh, your local environment shapes the, the, the wellness of your aging. Well, that's really good. I, I had it in my notes here, and so I want to mention it again, even though we've talked about it. This business of the way my mom has sort of shrunken herself to be a person who, she's actually quite healthy. Her mom lived to 106, and so she might have another 20 more years, but she really doesn't, you know, she doesn't get out of the house all that much and never, if it's not in the car, and, uh, you know, she's just sort of afraid of getting hurt, right? You know, she doesn't want to fall down. And, and so she has shrunken herself to where everything seems kind of dangerous. And, and maybe she has, her capabilities have shrunk it down to where maybe everything is a little dangerous. But she did it to herself, I think, in a way. Maybe it started with her, maybe her back hurt a little. And so she stopped doing so much or stopped doing some things. And then after a while, she couldn't do those things. And then other things started hurting and she just kept shrinking and shrinking until there just wasn't much there anymore. And that was all that she could do. And so it wasn't about, so sarcopenia is something that she suffers from. And that wasn't simply because she wasn't eating enough protein or she wasn't lifting weights, you know, all the things that you hear all the time that older people should do in order to not Mm -hmm. suffer from this thing. It was, it was her actually trying to be very rational and trying to be safe is what led her down that path. Yeah, uh, and I think it's it's 
as a clinician, it, this is, I think, one of the single hardest things to sort of figure out how to, how to get around with patients. And it's, it's about motivation and self-appraisal and getting people's mindset in a place where they're still really engaged, you know, it, and, and there's, you know, there could have been a moment where she was like, well, I'm just going to go to the pool and do water aerobics yeah, and get totally into that. And she'd be rock solid still. Right. And, yeah. and her whole appraisal about what's possible would have, would have changed. And so getting just, it's really hard to just tell people, Oh, you need to do X, Y, Z. And they, and then have them actually do that. Right, uh, right. Self-appraisal is very powerful, and uh, it's hard, hard to, to really change mindset. All right. Well, so getting back to this, you know, what should we do? And uh, I mean, I actually am, I'll just brag again and say, I am extraordinarily fit when it comes to lifting weights with all parts of my body. And my cardiovascular fitness is very strong, my resting heart rate. My aura ring says that my resting heart rate is uh, in the 30s every day. But yet, I'm not sure that I could call myself an athlete, really. Uh, you know, I have these capabilities, but, you know, when I used to rock climb, I used to, you know, be able to walk on a curb. Every time I saw a curb, I'd go walk on the curb, and that would be nothing for me to balance on that curb. And now I walk on a curb, and it's like, ooh, I might twist my ankle. I'm going to fall off of this thing and get hurt. And so I don't think I should do that. What am I turning into? So, so what do I do? Oh, I'm going to add balance drills into my workout routine. Okay. And then I'm going to add mobility drills into my routine. And, I, and now I have to work on like my vision. And uh, it's like, why don't I just go do some sports? All of those things are in that. Instead of yeah. piecemealing it all out and trying to find hours in the day to do all these things. Yeah, it's... What you're saying is, is also reflected in sort of the academy, especially in the rehabilitation and physical therapy. If you look at the literature on why people fall down when they age, they look at strength, right? People get weak, they get sarcopenia, they just get weaker. They have vision problems or they have uh, balance, sort of inner ear balance problems, right? Mm -hmm. those, are the, and those are all good reasons to fall down, right? But that's not why most people fall down. <laughs> they can see fine. They don't have any dizziness. And they're strong. And they still fall down. And the reason is they get rusty at, at just being able to move through all different kinds of environments. And it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's like we can do, we can do isolated balance exercises. I can get a better pair of glasses. I can do leg lifts. That's, that's all fine, but that's not going to fix your risk of falling down. The only thing that's going to do that is getting out in the environment. Yeah. Doing interesting things with your body. Right. And, and adjusting quickly when your foot does catch on the curb, you know, yep. and, that, and you don't fall down because it's no big deal. You just kind of shift yeah. your weight. and Your cat-like reflexes. That's right. Yeah. Which, you know, you had after falling down 14,000 times as a toddler, but um, yeah. you lose if you don't use it. Well, so I wonder if maybe the answer, part of the answer is here, is to follow your lead and to have some kind of a big adventure, maybe a lot of adventures, but maybe just at least one a year where it's going to really stretch you and maybe doing it by yourself is a bridge too far for somebody who maybe yeah. hasn't done it as many as you, Yeah, <laughs> but you know, get out talk. there and do something that's, that feels scary. It's more than you're ready for, and you're going to have to be careful, but you're going to, your, your brain is going to stretch. What do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, you're clearly a climber because climbers always like to push things to like, <laughs> to, they like to turn it up to 11. I don't think, I mean, you can turn it up to two and still get most of the benefits. In other words. All right. Well, tell us how to do that. It just, it's just engagement. You know, it's like. Uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the dog on a two mile walk, not, not around the block, but we're going to walk two miles, mm. you know, through a bunch of neighborhoods and through a bunch of trails, right? Or I'm going to, you know, just, just stretching out how you engage in, in, in the world around you is, is a really good start. 
and and you get comfortable with that and then you, then you dial in the more exotic trips you know if you've got mm-hmm. the resources to go to amazing places and you know, and if you do go to those places, you don't you don't just sit on the boat and look at the view. You you get off the boat, you know, and take right. right. Um, well, and you can use an upcoming trip as motivation to do your training and absolutely. And if the trip is going to involve lots of different physical skills, well, then you've got lots of training to do. You know, whether it's things you're going to do that involve lots of skills, or you're going to do lots of different kinds of training. So maybe you're going to do the two-mile walk with your dog, but that's only what you do one day a week. On the other days of the week, you're doing something different. That's great. I think it's exactly right. All right. Well, what do you think, Glenn? I know that you're uh, in the middle of trying to learn a new language and probably not an easy one. Well, this is great stuff, and I can see uh, the ideas you've given me already from just talking about the idea of using your brain in different ways, but I'm trying to learn a new language, and it's difficult. In fact, just last time we had a class and learning the fact that in, in English, I just think about where, the, where the, the, the words are and I know what they are. Subject goes here, noun goes there, verb goes there. But in Korean, that doesn't happen. There is no order. They just throw the words at you and it's like you have to know what the particle is. No, that's the object. That's the subject. That's the verb. And I don't know. So I'm looking. Oh, that's where the verb goes. Oh, the verb's over there. Where do you move it over there? Because I can put it over there. She was moving words around, creating the same sentence and saying it differently, and I was kind of going, but what's interesting is that in that conversation last night, I was using more of my brain, not just the contextual way of me saying subject, object, verb, but learned to move things around like, you, like with the three cups, you know, where's the prize kind of thing. And so it was helping me to, because I was using more of my brain to understand things. So it makes perfectly good sense. I love the idea. The concept is great. But you're not anywhere close to it going out of your conscious mind. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Couple years. <laughs> well, you said that. I was going to ask you this question because it's really interesting. Because you said when you stop using the frontal brain, whenever I hear a new word, I'm thinking, oh, that word means, and I think about it in the English and then relate the English back to the Korean. But I realized when I just know the word, boom, that word means I don't think about the English word. I learn faster because I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. using my brain to translate back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 Quite interesting. It's been argued for language. It's always been argued a good uh, drink of alcohol will help you get to there as well, right? <laughs> help you to relax. I think that's more. That just uh, that just loosens people up, so they're they're more willing to just try stuff without making without worrying about making mistakes. It's not a. Yeah. We don't recommend this for physical skills, but for <laughs> for. Speech, which is really a social problem, getting that disin, you know, get taking care of that inhibition can really help. Mm, I see. That's interesting. That actually rings a bell. I remember I, I had the unfortunate experience of learning to ski as an adult. I was 34 <sighs> years old before I had ever skied before. And so being embarrassed is an all the time thing because you're going down these slopes not at a pace of your own choosing and there's people in the air above you laughing at you and you can hear them laughing at you uh, so you're you're horribly inhibited um it really yes. I, I can remember how much it affected how i was i was not really willing at for a long time to try new things and of course that meant i didn't develop for a long time so anyway I mean, it it actually speaks to a really important thing for listeners who are contemplating, you know, like acquiring new skills, which is great for healthy aging, Uh, whether it's music or painting or whatever. Being in an environment where uh, you aren't inhibited really matters. You know, like if you're an if you're trying to learn a musical instrument and you're around a bunch of snobby experts, you're just never going to play, right? Whereas if you're with people who are, they could still be expert professional musicians, but if they just love music and they don't care what your level is, it can be fantastic because they can, they can uh, make you rise in your own abilities. Fantastic. I think that's true with with any kind of sport as well. That's true. Uh, Glenn, I was um, on a a chat room today and uh, talking with, uh, somebody who had pulled out of the archives of the Wise Athlete podcast, our episode with John Oyen. And John Oyen was all about camaraderie. 
and how yeah. important that was. And that was his secret to his longevity. He was, I can't even remember, he was like 78 at that time and still really kicking it pretty hard. And, um, and I was he's, he's asking him. He's 82 now, like, I think, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I, was, I wanted to know what supplements he was taking that was allowing him to do it. And he said, oh, it's camaraderie. You know, it's, yeah. it's the friendship is what drove him. So that's really awesome. Well, Dr. Grafton, thank you very much. This has been amazing for me. I, I have so much to think about. So uh, thank you for that. What, uh, where should people look to find more information about this, about your work? Um, you know, where are you online? I, I, I have zero. <laughs> I, do, I, have, I, I do everything I can not to be uh, anywhere close to social media because I, I really crave in-person relationships with people I know and love. I see. Well, I know and, where they can find your book, though. And, and they can. Yeah. The, you can get my book at, at Amazon or wherever you want, you know, physical intelligence. It's a, it's a fun read. And it's, you know, I, I could almost do a second edition. Sort of the coda to that book is, you know, when I, when I was finishing it, I really wanted to talk more about healthy aging specifically and the relationship uh-huh. between physical activity and healthy aging. At, when I wrote it, it was sort of a plausible connection. And since then, it's become absolutely a slam dunk case that, the single biggest factor to help with healthy aging is your level of physical activity. I believe that. Not exercise, not pills, nothing, not doing Sudokus, nothing mental. It's getting out and moving. And it just goes back to the idea of, you know, we are, we are, our mind, our brain, and our body are one. And the body really needs its part. Uh, it needs to make its contribution for the whole package to work. And I think that one, and one problem people have, uh, not me ever, because I've always enjoyed using my body, but some people don't. They think they don't anyway. And so they just yeah. need to find the thing that appeals to them. Because you're saying just about anything will is better than nothing. So find something that you enjoy. Yeah. And then, and then motivation isn't a problem, right? You, you just look, right. You're just looking for an opportunity to do it. Yeah. Get moving. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, Dr. Grafton. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, Glenn, good to see you. Likewise. All right. Have a good night, gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening in to our chat with Dr. Scott Grafton. You can find more information about Dr. Grafton and his book in the show notes.